Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm the long-lost pastor from Living Water. It's good to uh, be back. Uh, Kathy and I are grateful for the 10-week uh, sabbatical that we were uh, allowed to take here at Living Water. We had a, a wonderful time. I uh, did a little bit of education. I uh, did a little bit of relaxation. Uh, we uh, spent some time out on the West Coast and uh, in Atlanta, so it was it was great. But uh, we got to about a week before I was supposed to be back. I was kind of like, yeah, I think I'm ready to, to get back. And got back not this past week, but last week. And I think I was here for about two days. And I'm like, yep, I'm back. And, uh, but it's been good. So uh, as you saw on the video, this particular weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And for many of us, uh, the images that we just watched were not images that were recorded. We watched them live on television. Some of you actually watched them live from the streets of New York City. And uh, for those of you who uh, were old enough back then, uh, we vividly remember where we were and who we were with and what we were doing when we first heard the reports that the unthinkable had happened. I mean, no one in a million years would have ever dreamed that someone would, would commandeer a commercial aircraft and fly them into the World Trade Center of the Pentagon and a reclaimed strip mine in southwestern Pennsylvania. And in the span of one hour and 17 minutes, Nearly 3,000 people died. Another 6,000 people were injured. <clears throat> and as a result of those 77 minutes of evil, 1,300 kids were orphaned. 17 pregnant women would give birth to ch children over the course of the next several months who would never, ever know their father. And over 1,100 families would say goodbye to their loved ones without ever receiving any part of the remains. And in the days and weeks to follow, as many of you will remember, America would come together in ways that were not seen since the days of Pearl Harbor back in 1941. Partisan politics were put aside People from different ethnicities, socioeconomic classes came together to care for one another in, in, the, in the streets and in, in the communities. Kindness and compassion and thankfulness were overflowing in our nation. Uh, churches were packed to the brim as people came together to seek comfort and hope and the future. And in the midst of all of it, there was a, a common theme, a common phrase that, that you would find on, on handwritten signs put in storefronts. They were on billboards. They were on the lips of, of television anchors and radio personalities. Uh, you would hear them in the halls of government. Americans would utter them. And you guys, many of you know the phrase, two words, never forget. And yet time relentlessly pushes forward. And as the months gave way to years, and the years gave way to decades, the lessons and the unity 
of 9-11 faded. And into the void flowed what is perhaps the most divisive time in American history next to the Civil War. It seems as if we are divided in every possible way. But we're not just divided. Many of us are angry, in some cases even hateful. Respectful debate has been consumed by unrestrained vitriol. Collaboration has been replaced by cancellation. And tragically, grace has been supplanted by shame. And what was once a common ethic of personal sacrifice driven by a concern for the common good has now morphed into personal fulfillment driven by individual pursuits of self-gratification. And on September 11, 2001, we had a common enemy. That enemy was the terrorists. And today, 20 years later, sadly, we have become each other's enemies. American against American, neighbor against neighbor, family member against family member, and Christian against Christian. How quickly never forget more sin to easily forgotten. But the national unity of 9-11 isn't all that we have lost. In the midst of all of the chaos of the last 20 years, many of us have lost something far greater, something that grounds us, something that guides us, something that, that protects us, something that, that, that resides deep inside of us in our DNA, that, and it's something that, that is suppressed by our sin, and that something is the all of God. The all of God is the reverential fear and genuine wonder of the creature towards the creation. And it's what you and I were ultimately created for. Listen to the words of Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. 
Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And that, brothers and sisters, is the awe of God. In the words of pastor and author Paul David Tripp, he says this, the worldview of this psalm is that every human being has been hardwired by God to live in daily all of him. This means the deepest, most life-shaping, practical daily motivation of every human being was designed for the all of God. This is the call of every person. It is the umbrella of protection over every person. This is the reality This is the reality that is to define and give shape to every other reality in a person's life. You see, it is the all of God that that should control everything about it, every single aspect of our lives. It should drive our thoughts. It should drive our actions, our desires, our relationships, our expectations, our work, our rest, every aspect of our being. But sadly, many of us, me included, have exchanged the all of the holy God of the Bible for the all of lesser gods. You see, we're either going to live for God or we are going to live for ourselves. And when we live for ourselves, the focus of our life always gravitates to the lesser false gods of money and power and position and reputation and sex, social media status, technology, our careers, our children, our ethnicity, our politics, and sometimes even our theology. And as a result, as we do this, as we worship the, these lesser false gods, we plunge ourselves in, kind, in all kinds of sin as we stand in all of them. And they always, always, always overpromise and underdeliver. Now, this is something that I've spent a great deal thinking about over the last 10 weeks of my sabbatical. I had a lot of time to ask myself questions like, what are the lesser gods that capture my affection and consume my time and burden my soul and drive me the sins that I battle with? How have I, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator? That has been a, a, a sobering exercise to consider all of those things because some of those things that I've considered are seemingly good things. Like the the work that I do as a pastor, like preaching and leading and ministering to others and caring, those are good things. But when they become the focal point of my life, when, when that which is good becomes that which is ultimate, there's a problem. 
when my identity and my subsequent joy and my peace is determined by how well other people think that I'm doing, there's something radically wrong. And I'm pretty confident that I'm not alone in this. No doubt there are many of you sitting in this room right now who are living in awe of lesser gods rather than living in awe of the glorious God of the universe. And because of that, like me, you have been missing out on the joy and peace that comes from living a life in, in constant awe of our glorious God, the one who the psalmist declares is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So if that's our problem, how in the world do we actually recapture the all of God? That's what I want to spend a little time thinking about uh, this morning with you. And I, I believe one of the ways that, that, that we can begin to recapture the all of God is to, to examine a little bit of the life of someone who is living their life in the all of God. There's a man by the name of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. His name means God is salvation. He lived some 750, 775 years before the birth of Jesus. We believe that he was born in Jerusalem to a, a prominent family that was related to the monarchy of Judah, which at that time was the, the capital, uh, or was the, not the capital, but was the southern kingdom of the divided nation of Israel. And Isaiah was, was married, we know that from, from the writings of the Bible. We know that he had two boys whose names I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce. He may have had more children. And he spent 40 years of his life faithfully speaking on behalf of God to a nation that ignored his pleas that was racing towards its own destruction. And while the prophetic book that he wrote, which is not surprisingly entitled Isaiah, tells us much about what he said, it doesn't give us a lot of detail about his life. But the detail that it does give us, I believe, is, is enough to show us how that, that we can begin to reclaim the all of God. And much of what I want to share with you this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, if you would open it to Isaiah chapter 6, practically in the middle of your Bible, we're going to uh, read the entire chapter. Isaiah chapter 6. If you were able to stand in honor of God's word, that would be wonderful. <clears throat> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, 
for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people from moves people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled the holy seed is its stump this is the word of God you may be seated now in Isaiah chapter 6 we see a very vivid picture of of how the God of the universe revealed himself to Isaiah. Now we need to know that there is a little bit of of debate as it arises to whether or not this was the the very first calling or the very first revealing of God to Isaiah. You've got five chapters in the beginning of Isaiah where he is speaking prophecy. And so so some people say that that chapter six should come before chapters one through five. Others say that this is a second call. It really is inconsequential to to our discussion. But what I want to do here is before we talk about what Isaiah sees, I want to talk about when he actually sees it. We're told this vision happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah, he ascended the throne of Judah when he was 16 years old. At that time, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, had been ravaged by a war that was fought by his father, who had foolishly decided to fight against the northern kingdom. And now it is Uzziah's job, who's this young teenager, to to rebuild and refortify the city and to correct its shattered economy. And so that is exactly what Uzziah does. Over the course of several decades, he he rebuilds the walls, he builds towers upon the wall tops and and the towers, he puts catapults that can launch flaming uh, boulders and arrows and things like that. He rebuilds the army, he retakes land that had been lost by his father, and all the while he grows this economy and ushers in a time of great prosperity. And 2 Chronicles tells us that this was all possible because Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now that's pretty amazing. 
Think about what can happen when the leader of a nation or the leader of a state or a city or a township or a business or for that matter, a family decides to seek the Lord and live in reverent fear of him. We're told that I, Uzziah, or told that he, Uzziah, sought the Lord and God made him prosper. Unfortunately, success many times brings with it pride. And that's exactly what happened in Uzziah's case. Towards the end of his reign, he decides that he wants to have more than just political power. He decides that he wants to have religious power. And so he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he begins to burn incense, which was reserved for the priests. And as punishment, God judged Uzziah by striking him with leprosy. And for the next 10 years, he lived alone and disgraced while his younger son acted as king. And when he ultimately died, it was the turning point for the nation of Judah. In the midst of all of the prosperity and all of the power, one of the things that Uzziah was unable to do was to capture the heart of the people as they continued to worship false gods and they lived in unfaithfulness. And as they did that, and as he died, things began to take a turn for the worse. They began to go very, very bad. And it is into this mix that Isaiah is called to prophesy. So what does he see? He sees what can only be described as a divine vision. He sees the, the holy God of the universe in his heavenly throne room. And he's exalted above all things. He's surrounded by heavenly beings who bow before his throne as they fly. They declare one to, to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they call to one another, the entire structure is shaking. Smoke is filling the room. It is simultaneously glorious and terrifying. It is so glorious, so terrifying, that in the midst of this incredible scene, the only thing that Isaiah is able to pen is four simple verses. And these verses show us how the God of the Holy Bible is unlike us. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is ever-present. He's overflowing in love and perfect injustice. His wrath is unbearable. His grace is fully sufficient. He cannot be constrained by our whims. He will not be limited by our fears. He is not shackled by our sinful desires. Yet in spite of all of this otherness, he is wildly personal. He desires to be known, not just on a surface level, but intimately in the very depths of our being. And throughout the pages of the Bible, you see God interacting with human beings, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Jacob, Moses. And today, the God of the universe personally engages people like you and me through his son, Jesus the Christ, who the apostle Paul describes in Colossians 1. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And if it is our desire to stop worshiping all of these lesser gods, if we are tired of being trapped in some kind of purposeless life of frustration and despair and confusion, if we want to live vibrant and hopeful and joy-filled lives in all of the true and living God, we must first and foremost have an encounter with his son, Jesus Christ the one who not only died for our sins, but the one who spoke the world into existence and holds the universe together. And the first step in recapturing the all of God is to go back to that glorious day when Jesus himself broke through time and space and graciously drew you and I to him. On that day, during that time that he came to you, he took away your sin, covered it by his righteousness, he took away your shame, he renewed our mind, he poured hope into our spirit. And if, remembering that time doesn't make you and I and all of God, nothing will. For some of you, that was a moment in time. God suddenly showed up, your eyes were opened, you committed to follow him all the days of your life. For others... It was a process of God gently wooing you to himself until one day you received him. But perhaps you haven't experienced that grace-infused salvation that Jesus offers. Perhaps you never have known what it's like to personally encounter him do so begins by humbly coming before Jesus and asking him to reveal himself to you. Genuinely crying out to him and saying, Jesus, if if you're real, if, if, if this book is true, show me. Don't make me learn it from somebody else. Show me if you are real. And you can be confident that he will do that. Because God promises in his word that if you seek and find me, you will seek me with all of your heart. Taking the first step 
is beginning a heart-stopping journey with Jesus. And so if you want to begin to reclaim the all of God in your life, it always begins with encountering the Holy Christ. Now there's a second thing that happens here that we see. You see, living in all of God demands that we come face to face with the utter depth of our sin. Now I know that you don't make a lot of friends when you start talking about sin. But the natural outflowing of a real encounter with the holy God of the universe is a life-altering realization of how incredibly sinful we are. That's exactly what happens to Isaiah. Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And throughout the Bible, we see this this pattern of of individuals encountering a holy God, the holy God, and immediately they're being made aware of their sinfulness. One of the most obvious examples of that is in Luke chapter 5 with Peter the fisherman when he first meets Jesus. Some of you will will recount that, 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 uh, that account in the Bible You've got uh, Peter, he's been been fishing all night. He's a skilled fisherman. He owns his own business. He's been out there the entire night. He's caught absolutely nothing. He is frustrated. The sun has has risen up. He's brought his boat into shore. He's cleaning his, his nets, and Jesus shows up. And he's never had an encounter with Jesus before, but they, they begin with some initial chit-chat. Jesus, uh, he, he tells Jesus, hey, I, I didn't catch any fish. Jesus said, put your boat out, throw your net over to the other side. Peter's like, I'm the fisherman. I don't know who you are. I've been doing this all night long. Why should I do that? But he obeys. And he pushes his boat out, and he throws the net out. And, and before he knows it, the net is so overflowing with fish that it is tearing apart. And, and, and rather than being overwhelmed by the catch, Peter is overwhelmed by the Savior. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 5. But when Simon Peter saw the overflowing nets, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And like Peter, When you and I encounter the blazing holiness of God, our sin, much of which we have been blinded from in the past, much of which we have done everything to hide in the past, becomes so incredibly evident. So evident that we are in awe of the fact that the God of the universe would engage us in our undeserving, sin-infused, broken lives. It's mind-boggling the holy God of the universe would come to us in the midst of our sin, that he's not repulsed by us. Yet instead, he loves us. But there is more going on here than Isaiah simply recognizing his own sin in light of God's holiness. He recognizes something else. He recognizes the sin of his community. Not only does Isaiah have unclean lips, 
but he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, many of us don't get this, nor do we like this. We're individualists. We believe in personal responsibility. We struggle to think that we could be possibly, how could we possibly be responsible for things that we haven't directly done? And we betray the fact that, that we believe that by things that we say. We say things like this. Racism is bad, but it's not my problem because I'm not a racist. Or we say, all the violence that is happening in the city, that's bad, but it's not my problem because I'm not the one committing the violence. However, that thought process is completely contrary to that which we find in the Bible. And it reveals in us a tragic misunderstanding of the gospel. In a few weeks, we're going to go through Romans chapter 5. And we will address corporate responsibility for sin in detail. But let me briefly address it here. Joshua 7 deals with this concept very, very clearly. Uh, the Israelites, are, they're coming into the promised land. They're all excited. God has finally given them the promised land. God has made a, 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 a law. God has said, you can go into the promised land, but don't take any of the stuff. You can't take any of the spoil of war. But there's this dude by the name of Achan. And Achan, he gets into the promised land, he sees all of the spoil of war, and he gathers up a bunch of the spoil, he takes it into his tent, he buries it under the floor of his tent. Not surprising, he is found out. When he is found out, he is stoned to death for violating God's command. But he is not the only one who is stoned to death. His entire family is stoned to death. And many of us will read this and we're like, what? You have got to be kidding me. Where is the justice? This man sinned. I get that he was, he, he was stoned. But why in the world is his mom and his dad, his wife, his kids, his grandkids, why are they all being stoned along with him? That is not fair. And while the white American evangelical culture that I grew up in leads me to that conclusion, there are African and Asian evangelical Christians that totally understand what happened to Achan and his family. You see, their culture is different than the American culture. They see things differently. We always think we see things correctly. But the fact of the matter is, those who are of African and Asian uh, descent and, and those who are, who are first generation African and Asians, they get this, what? They understand. Our family and our friends help form us into the people that we are. They realize that we are not merely a product of our own choices. Our community and our government help shape us into the people who we are. Even our church influences who we are. And as such, they have some 
corporate responsibility for our actions. Now, maybe some of you are sitting there right now and saying, I don't buy that, Pastor Mike. What you're selling, I'm not willing to purchase. Let me give you a little preview of what we're going to discover a few weeks in Romans 5. In Romans 5, we find that from the moment of our birth, actually from the moment of our conception, we are all guilty before God. Not because of anything we've done wrong, because when you're in the womb swimming around there, you can't do anything wrong. But simply because we have inherited the original sin of Adam and Eve. And as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden, we stand condemned before God, and we haven't done jack squat. And that, brothers and sisters, is corporate responsibility for sin. Exactly what Isaiah is expressing in verse 5 and exactly what is occurring with Achan in verse 7 of Joshua. But there's more. In Romans 5, we are going to discover that we are saved not by what we do as individuals, but instead by what Jesus has done for us. You see, the entire gospel, it's corporate, not individualistic. Our salvation isn't something that we earn. It comes from what? Being connected to Jesus. We benefit by what Jesus has done. We are sinful because of what Adam and Eve has done. There is this corporate responsibility that flows both ways. And that brings me to the next reason we see from Isaiah's life that we should live consistently in all of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You see, living in uh, the all of God, it is rooted in a heart of gratitude for God's grace and forgiveness. Here is Isaiah. He is standing in all of God's glory while at the same time, he is utterly shattered by his sin. God is awesome. I'm a mess. And, and he doesn't know what to do. And as he's there, something completely unexpected happens. One of the seraphim stops his worship of God. Stops crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he takes his focus off of, uh, off of God. And he puts his focus on Isaiah. And he goes to the altar and with a tong, he, he takes an ember. And, and he, he places it on Isaiah's mouth. And he declares, your guilt is taken away, your sins atoned for. Do we recognize, do we understand what is actually happening here? The, the significance? God is allowing the worship of him to be diverted in order to minister to Isaiah in the midst of Isaiah's sin. If you're a Christian, if you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what God has done for Isaiah, he has done for you. 
That's what he's done. Listen to the amazing words of the ancient hymn that's recorded in Philippians 2. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Think about this. Jesus leaves the glory of heaven. He leaves the purity of heaven, the sinfulness of heaven, the beauty of heaven, and he enters into our world. And in this world, in the midst of rejection and abuse, and ridicule, he lives a pure life. Not a single sin. Tempted in every way, but without sin. And then he goes to the cross. And on the cross, all of hell rejoices because they believe that God has been defeated. In reality, Jesus is paying the penalty for your sin and mine. He's, he's the burning ember. He, he's the one that, 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 that whose worship was taken away. He's the one who comes and, and purifies us, takes upon himself God the Father's wrath for our sin, gives to us his righteousness and what is the proper response to something like that it's to live a life in all of money or sex it is to live a life in reverential fear and genuine wonder towards God so let me summarize what we've learned so far. Living in the all of God begins with a personal encounter with God. That's where it starts. And when we have this personal encounter, because we'll know if the encounter's personal or not. Lots of people say that I'm a Christian. But the people who've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, they are gonna be wrecked by their sin because they have encountered a holy God and their sin has been laid before them. And so that's the second piece. Your life is wrecked because of your sin. And then you are blown away because the God of the universe, who is holy, who sees your sin, loves you anyhow. So much so that he covers your sin through the death of his son. And when we get that, when we focus our lives around those three truths, when we are amazed by God, who God is, when we have an accurate picture of who we are, when we are overwhelmed by what God has done on our behalf, it is then and only then that we will stop worshiping these little gods of the world who distract and destroy. And we will begin to joyously embrace 
the all of God and be willing to follow his call on our lives. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. You see, when we live our lives in all of God, we are able to embrace God's call on our lives regardless of the cost. Now, notice the order of events, how this whole thing goes down. Through a personal encounter with God, Isaiah has a clear picture of God's holiness. He has a clear picture of his own sinfulness. He has a clear picture of what it's like to experience God's grace and forgiveness. And then God comes along and says, who shall I send and who will go for us? Don't miss this. God provides no direction, no mission, no destination, no timeline. All he says is, I need someone to go for me. Who in here is going to sign up for that? We try to get people to sign up to hand out worship folders during a church service. And you guys want every question answered. Tons of them. Every one of the, you know, the questions from the grammar. Who, how, why, what, when, whatever. Everybody wants to know those answers. And until we get a, a clear picture of what we're signing up for, we're not even signing up for giving out bulletins. But Isaiah wasn't like us. He's living in all of God. What's his response? I'll go! Send me! God, I don't know where you want me to go. I don't know who you want me to go to. I don't know what you want me to say. I don't know how in the world I'm going to do this. But none of that matters. I'm living in all of you. I am blown away by what you've done in my life. I trust you. I am going to follow you. Now what comes next? It's off the hook. Look at verses 9 and 10. And he said, this is God, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their eyes heavy and or their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now that Isaiah is committed, God gives some of the instructions. God says, go to your people and tell them things that they don't want to hear and watch them do things that they're not going to do the things that you've told them. They're going to ignore you. In some cases, they're going to beat you. There's a point in Isaiah where God tells him over the period of 36 months, he's supposed to be in the town naked and he does it. I read that. I was like, my mind was blown. Like, who does that? Now, notice how Isaiah responds to this. Verse 11. How long, O oh Lord? It's like, okay, I signed up for this. I'm going to do it. Can you please tell me how long? 
Can you imagine if God would have said 40 years? This is what God says. Until cities lie waste without inhabitants. Think Hiroshima, Nagasaki. We don't, even, we don't even know what that looks like. Think of the entire city of Harrisburg with not a single human being in it. And houses without people. The land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it's going to be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. You see, God's calling on Isaiah's life is not going to be easy. Yet for 40 years, 40 years, he obeys. It is thankless work. And from what I see that the Bible teaches and from my experience, which is always a dangerous thing to go by, that's how God works. Truly living for him, truly serving him, is never easy. If you want easy, run from Christianity. True Christianity is painful. True obedience is brutal. I'll just be really real right now. I go through my life at times comparing myself to other people, other families. I think to myself, the trajectory of my life right out of college and up till 1997 before I went to seminary. It's completely different than the trajectory of my life right now. And I see friends, we were down visiting Kathy's roommate in college, you know, they got this beautiful home on a lake in Georgia and, you know, incredible. And I get crazy jealous about that stuff sometimes. On the flip side, I look at some of my other friends and their lives are tough. I've been blessed in a lot more, you know, not blessed, but things are easier for me. And the reality is, Kathy's roommate and her husband, godly people. The folks over here struggling, godly people. But what the thing that happens is when I look at these other people who think, I think things are just going so good, the reality is, if they're following hard after Jesus, they've got struggles in their lives too. They're just different than mine. But what happens is I don't always see that. And I get angry with God. And I'm like, God, why are these people's lives so much different than mine? And I get mad. And it's during those times I'm not living in all of God. I'm living in all of my friends. I'm living in all the money and possessions and stuff 
a lot of times it's not that they even have a lot more money than I do. It's just like their life just seems so much better. They don't have troubles with their kids, it seems like. And all of those times, and this is, folks, this is the stuff I was dealing with over the last 10 weeks, just trying to process that. You, you go across the country, you see a bunch of your friends, they're living a whole lot differently than you are. And the reality is, I'm living in all of other things. And I don't want to do that. It doesn't matter where you're at in the social status of this life. What you have, what you don't have, it's inconsequential. What matters is all you're really living in all of God. Are you blown away by what he has done? Is he constantly lovingly revealing your sin so that you can be conformed more to the image of his son. That's, folks, that's the stuff that matters. Don't, don't get caught up in all this other stuff like I would allow myself to get caught up in. Because the fact of the matter is, when you cut right to the chase, being sold out to Jesus is always going to be hard. It is never going to be easy. The ancient Jewish teachers believed that Isaiah was sawn in half at the end. Forty years of obedience. And the man gets sawed in half. Was God faithful or not? Absolutely faithful. Isaiah standing before the throne of God as we speak right now. Folks, don't settle for the lesser gods. It may be pleasant for a little while. It always ends in destruction. Pursue Jesus with all of your heart. Live in all of him. Take the struggles that he sends your way, not as a punishment, but as a blessing to remind you of how desperately you need him. And he will always, always, always be faithful. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I thank you that you were gracious to us. Lord, even when we wander away, no wonder, Lord, we are portrayed as sheep. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room will pursue you with all of their heart. Lord, whether they are single moms, custodians, teachers, police officers, doctors, business owners, nurses, researchers, whatever, Heavenly Father, wherever you have them, or may they not be in all of the things that you have provided them, but might they be in all of the provider 
Lord, you meet the needs of the widow and the orphan as much as you meet the needs of the landowner. God, draw us deeply to yourself. Help us never to settle for that which is less. Help us to pursue you with all of our hearts. Lord, without you, we can't do it. Thank you that you have deposited your spirit inside of us who brings us hope and strength and conviction. May that spirit work powerfully in us to cause us, Heavenly Father, to worship you and you alone. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Just stand as we prepare to close.